We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And a little bit before that, at the end of chapter 3. So as we're in a season of reflection of our past as a church and our present as a church, I have at least a mustard seed of faith. It is for sure a real mustard seed of faith. And because you know, like I do, that the Lord says about mustard seeds of faith, that they're sufficient, I'm trusting that the Lord is at work. And that he would call us and call you and call me to this passage we're going to look at today. I had a different message that I was planning to give. Uh, and as I was preparing for it, I could not rest. I could not get a sense of peace about it. So I prayed, and I felt as I prayed that the Lord led me to a different place, um, more directly, specifically, to where we are as a church right now, as a church family. So this is going to be a little bit more personal and direct for our journey right now with the solemn assembly and and just as a family in Christ. So, Lord willing, uh, he will feed us all through his word today. And I do have faith that he will be doing that. So let's read God's word together, starting in Ephesians 4, verse 1 through verse 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord God, would your Holy Spirit breathe upon these words so that they would not just be words, but they would be nourishment, as John said to us, about communion. That the word made flesh, Jesus, through the Spirit of God who spoke these words through his people would Make this food and drink for our souls, for my soul, and for the souls of my brothers and sisters in my family. We thank you that this is why you gave us your word, that we might hear it again, not just with human ears, but with ears anointed with the Holy Spirit, with your Holy Spirit making these words food for us, that we might grow and be nourished and be sustained and be given power and strength and renewal in you. Lord, strengthen weary hearts. Give courage to fearful, confused hearts. Give light to dark minds. Lord, do your miraculous work that your Holy Spirit is able to do through your Holy Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a famous cultural poem out there uh, that goes something like this. You might see different variations. I've kind of tweaked the one that I found on the web. But you might recognize it if you've seen it before. You might recognize it. I asked God to make me strong. And he gave me great difficulties to bear. 
I asked God to make me wise. And he gave me terrible problems to deal with. I asked God to make me courageous. And he gave me grave dangers to face. I asked God to make me patient. And he gave me situations I long to escape. I asked God to make me loving. And he gave me troubled and difficult people to live with. In the end, I received nothing I wanted. And I received everything I needed. Now this poem and the ones that are like it, they're not in the Bible. But there's a principle in this poem that speaks to something that is deeply rooted in the Bible. And the principle is this. God develops our dependence on him and shapes our character to be like him through trial. God shapes, develops our dependence on him and conforms our character to be more like him through the crucible of trial, right? So that's the whole point of the poem. I asked for patience and God put pressure on me. Made me want to be impatient. As Kurt said last week, and if you didn't listen to that message, I just appeal to you guys, go back and listen to Kurt's message. It's a long message, but it is so worth it. Um, As he said last week, we don't like suffering. We don't like crucibles. We don't like trials. We all naturally want instantaneous change. That, and that instantaneous change, we will only experience when we meet Christ in the air on the day the rapture and the resurrection take place. That day, yes, our change will be instant. It will be finished, as Kurt told us. That day, we will be perfect. But only that day will our change be instant. Because until that day, largely, our change will consist of be, being something else called being in trial, being tested, being in crisis. Trials. Those trials will come for sure again and again until that day. But those trials will always have a purpose. And that purpose will always be ultimately one purpose to make us more like Jesus. And we see this in scripture so often. But just so you're convinced that it is in scripture, not just in a little poem I took from the internet. Just remember James 1 where the church is told, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Romans 5, Paul tells the church, We all glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Or consider Paul's own narrative, his own personal trial in Asia. He talks about in Second Corinthians 1, where he says he was burdened exceedingly beyond his ability to bear it. Paul the apostle, post-apostlehood, like this is not pre-Christian Paul, this is Christian Paul. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He says he felt the sense of death upon him. He despaired of life. But then he says, this happened that I might not rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead. And so we see here in so many other places that when God wants to grow you, when God wants to grow me, he puts you through trial. He puts you through pressure. Just like you do when you go to grow any muscle in your body. (laughs) At the gym, you apply resistance to it. You don't just sit there and say, I'm working on my buys. Grow by, you can do it. You can do it, little buddy. No, you you put a weight on it and you make it hurt. You put resistance against it. 
So when God wants to grow the muscle of your character, he applies weight, he applies pressure to the muscle of your character. Hence, back to the poem, I asked God to become courageous and he gave me grave dangers to face. This might seem a little off point concerning the verse on unity with all these commands that we have before us this morning. But it it is enlightened this principle of growth through trial. That I saw something I'd never seen before in this passage. And not specifically in the passage, but in the broader context around the passage. That I believe says something really important to us. So in order to show you that, what I want to do early in this message is to go back immediately before the passage and see what's just before it. And when we look at what's just before the passage, we will see Paul asking God for something. Just like in those poems. I asked God for courage. He gave me trials. I asked God for patience. He gave me something I wanted to get out of. You see Paul praying that God would give the church a supernatural experience of his love among them. He says this in Ephesians 14 to the end of 21, right before the first verse in our passage focused today. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, and I believe that you is a you all, you all being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge that you all may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is the Holy Spirit who works within us. To him be glory in the what? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is asking that Christ's love would be experienced deeply by these Christians. But he's not asking it about individual Christians. He's asking it to be experienced in their togetherness. The church. Together with all the saints. All the y'alls. They're all plural. And then notice what Paul says with his very next breath. Remember in the, in the letters, there's no chapter 3, there's no chapter 4. There's just sentences. The very next sentence after this prayer for us all experiencing God's love together is this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you all. This is plural. I'm putting it in there because we don't see it in the English. But in the Greek, it's you all. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager To maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. Who is over all, through all, and in all. After praying for the church. Not individuals, but the church. That they would all be filled together with Christ's love. And praying that the spirit would do this through his power inside the church, and declaring that all glory belongs to God alone in the church, Paul says to them, therefore, love each other. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever read that prayer 
the same way again. Because I've never been able to see this connection between that prayer for love among them all. The love of Christ experienced among them all. And what Paul wants out of that prayer to happen in the very next sentence, our passage today. Therefore, walk in love. Therefore, walk in unity. Do you see that? A prayer for the love of Christ, knowing his love, being full of his love, to be experienced by the church together, is immediately followed by a command for love to be expressed among the church as opposed to disunity. And those two, the prayer for love to be experienced and the command for love to be expressed are connected by this word, therefore. I pray you will know Christ's love for you together. That's, that's the prayer. Therefore, love one another. So what is going on here between the connection between the prayer and the command? Well, I think what's going on here is that the prayer for love is going to be tested It's going to be sought and fought for and found in the people together as they struggle together against disunity. Paul is praying, God, make them know Christ's love together. Make them full of it so they express it together. In the very next passage, our passage, is this implicit struggle against disunity. That God's people will have to face this resistance, this gymnasium. They will have to go through if they're going to persevere and and to become a mature and developed church. Coming back to our passage, let's see again what's called for. Let's just look at what's called for here. And maybe we'll be able to see that gymnasium take shape. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Start with verse 1. They have received an incredible calling. God's called them into his family. They didn't earn it. They don't necessarily act like it yet, but that's the call they got. He has made them his children together. He's made them one family. They've been called to know and experience his saving, forgiving, adopting, new creature-making love. They were saved as individuals into a family. His family. The church, together with all the saints, one people of God. And so, because they've been called together, they must walk with all humility, Paul says. They must not consider themselves more important than each other, or lord it over one another, or better than the other, or as having it all together while the other doesn't. They must seek to see themselves as servants of one another. They must walk in all gentleness. This word doesn't speak of weakness, but of this restrained power. It's holding back what you could exert. It speaks of considerateness and sensitivity to each other. They must walk with patience. This word also denotes steadfastness in suffering. Enduring difficulty. Not giving up on each other but hanging in there with each other in difficulty. And it's related to the concept of granting clemency. Like when the governor calls and you get off the electric chair. When you could come down hard on someone, but you hold back from that spirit. You're not eager, but you're reluctant. And you pull back from being an avenger of wrongs. And Paul says you must forbear with each other. 
You must put up with each other's faults and each other's idiosyncrasies. Not in a proud, looking down on that person way, like, oh boy, there's Albert. (sighs) He's going to mess up those announcements again with his dumb jokes. But no, you say, wow, he's got a great sense of humor. I love Albert. He's amazing. I never thought of it that way, how funny he is. Is that David? Oh, man. Sorry, David. No, that's not what it means at all. It means, yeah, you can say, man, he struggles with being on time or he struggles with preaching too long. I'm going to talk to him about that. But I'm not going to spout off. I'm going to forbear. I'm going to hang in there with him. Now, not every passage teaches every passage, okay? This, this call is not unqualified in the sense that there are no, no times to rebuke or correct. There are times to rebuke. Sometimes loving each other means you have to do that. In worst case scenarios, you have to bring church discipline at times. The whole church is called at times to expel a member or to deal with a sinful situation that has to be opposed. This doesn't mean that there will be people who will necessarily not be at peace with you, even after you've done what you can. No, there will be those people. This does not mean that you're reckless or foolish in who you trust yourself to in intimate ways, emotionally or other ways. God's not calling us not to be wise, but, but the tone here, the emphasis here, even here, has everything to do, even in those difficult situations, has everything to do with redemption and loving and forbearing and long-suffering, even if it has to be a tough love. It has nothing to do with vengeance or a desire to separate yourself in isolation as superior to somebody else. That's just not part of God's ethos, and it's not reflected here. Rather, Paul says, summing all this up, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are united, and we must be eager to maintain that functional unity that we have in Christ positionally in heaven. So he spouts off this huge cascade of onenessnesses one in spirit one father one lord one call one baptism implicitly crying out how then can our functional actual lives look like factions and division and strife and enmity and hatred and bitterness when we all claim to be following one call one baptism One Father, one faith, one Lord, one God. It makes no sense. Something doesn't add up. But before we get to, you know, beautiful and warm fuzzy, let's just stop here. Remember those words. Be gentle, be patient, forbear. Be patient. Do you, do you feel, if you think about these words with real people in this church, Real people in your own house? Do you feel the crisis that creates in you? Do you feel the weight? The pressure on the muscles of your character? The cost? The potential pain of these commands? Is that not presenting a real crisis to you? If you think about what it might mean? I mean, these qualities here imply a need for these qualities. (laughs) Otherwise, why command them? You don't need to forbear unless there's pressure calling you not to forbear any longer. You don't need to be commanded to be patient unless there's pressure calling you not to be patient any longer. You don't need to endure unless there's pressure calling you not to endure any longer. That's not why Paul commands these things because there's no, no, there's weights going on here. 
There's pressure. So in verse 3, he says, be eager to maintain. Be eager to maintain unity in the spirit. And this Greek verb suggests, the Greek verb in that maintain unity, it suggests difficulty that already exists. Yet in response to that difficulty, there is a resolute determination, Paul's commanding, to overcome it. That verb, maintain unity, is pregnant with a struggle, a problem, a difficulty to maintain unity. And so coming back again to this concept we talked about at the beginning, that poem. I asked to grow in love, and God gave me troubled and difficult people to live with. And we come back to this biblical principle that trials exist to deepen our dependence on Jesus. To deepen our likeness to him. To push our character. To put weights on the muscles of our heart. That that heart might grow stronger with love. And so as I looked at all this together. I just asked these questions. What if God in his sovereignty. Is using the difficulty. That we experience as a church. That we've been experiencing as a church. All these things that seek to pull us away from each other. What if there are weights that God is allowing in our lives to drive us to him? Because we see the contrast between what our hearts want to do and what he calls us to. We recognize the problem. We recognize the deficiency in us to do those things he's calling us to. We feel the pressure from him. And the resistance from what our muscles want to do. What if he's done that to drive us more deeply into him? More deeply dependent on him so that we might experience even a greater knowledge of his power. Of his love. Of the sufficiency of his Holy Spirit. What if he's doing that so that we would experience him at a level together? That we would never have had to do to, we would never have had to if we didn't face the difficulty in the first place. What if that deeper intimacy then with Him that we experience as He meant us is meant to fuel and drive us more deeply into each other together as we meet His intimacy and His power? So that together we look more like Jesus and we end up more unified than if we'd never faced the difficulties to begin with. What if that was true? Well, if that was true, it would make a lot more sense of the prayer that precedes this command, wouldn't it? It would do a lot to explain what that prayer is doing there. Paul asks for the Ephesians to know in their experience, and he emphasizes this communal together experience. He asks the Ephesians to know and experience the love of Jesus. And then, in the gymnasium of difficulties with each other, they're faced with a trial. Lord, I ask you to make them more loving. And he gives them some trials. He gives them difficult, troubled people to live with. (laughs) And he offers us this choice. And let me say, before I say the choice, I am not saying, I've had to say this before and I'll say it again. I'm not getting in your hearts between you and the Lord. And today, judiciously judiciously declaring 
That if you leave this church or you know people who have left this church, that they've sinned and they've given up on God. That's not what I'm saying. There are good reasons to leave a church. There are bad reasons to leave a church. And more and more, we want to do our best to leave that between God and those people. Because we don't see all that God sees. We don't know all that God sees. And we're called to live in peace. And unless people are walking away from the Lord explicitly in sin, they may be walking away to a church that God's called them to and to a, a different place for what God has called them to. And we can bless them in that. It's one of the reasons why in our membership documents, it says if you leave our church, we just ask that you go to a church, a good, healthy church. Because the one thing we know is that you're supposed to be part of a good, God-fearing, Bible-teaching church that believes the gospel and preaches the gospel. But for us who are here, we have to grapple with this question. For those of us who are left, in the gymnasium of difficulties with each other, we might be faced with a trial. And it might be this trial. On the other hand, after everything I just said, it might actually be this. Pull away from each other. Because we just don't want to endure any longer. Because we just don't want to be patient anymore. Because we just don't want to be gentle any longer. Because we just don't want to fight to be humble anymore. We don't want to try to listen and understand. We just want to tell each other off and go. That's one choice. Pull away from each other. And by doing so, pull away from God. That's a possibility. Or the other possibility. Draw near to God for the grace needed to push into him more deeply. To depend on him more greatly. And for the ability to push into each other. Through the hard things. And find ourselves experiencing more of God's love than we knew was there. And find ourselves experiencing and beginning to live out the answer to that prayer Paul prayed. And understanding why Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is right before Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Lord, I ask you to grow them in love. And he gave us difficult and troubled people to live with. The other night, I lost my temper with my kids. And it wasn't, I mean, they were being knucklehead, bad kids. They were doing some typical fighting with each other stuff. But I was anxious. It didn't have to do with them primarily. But I was burdened. And I raised my voice at them. And I sent them all to their rooms. And it was sinful anger. I knew it. I I could see that my lack of trust in the Lord was a venting way for me to react sinfully to their customary immaturity. And in his grace, the Lord allowed me to see how my lack of faith in him had led to a redirect towards them. Instead of going to him with my anxiety, my fear, and my burden that I was carrying all day long because of an email that I struggled with, he allowed me to see that my hate, my angry tone was unleashed on them. And I was convicted. And I went upstairs to them. And I have a, you know, I have a four-year-old boy who's the sweetest boy in the universe. I have a six-year-old boy who's the most sensitive little guy in the universe. And I have a nine-year-old girl who's the most sweetest, 
hearted girl in the universe. And I sensed the Lord calling me back to him as I went to them. And I explained how I had sinned against the Lord. And I asked them for their forgiveness. And they forgave me. And we spent a, a good amount of time talking about how I had sinned against the Lord and against them. And my reverence for the Lord and my role as a parent, it grew in that moment. And my love for my children in that moment, it grew. And I ended up being more in love with the Lord and more in love with my children at the end of that trial than at the morning time when no email had come and no anxiety had been there. I left that sinful, disobedient act and that time of reconciliation with them with a much more greater, just crazy love for my babies than I had in that morning. God sent me to the gym. And in the gym, I had to make a choice. But because he was so merciful and gracious, he helped me make the right choice. And I ended up with way more love and way more of a a better next few days with my kids than I ever would have had without that bad experience. You guys might remember many, many months ago, maybe about a year and a half, we spent a season... We spent a couple of months as a church praying this Ephesians 3 prayer over and over again. That our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight that we might know together with all the saints what are the height and depth and width of Christ and to know this love, be full of this love to him who can do more than all we ask or imagine. We prayed that a lot, many Sundays. Do anybody remember that season when we were going through that prayer? Raise your hand if you remember that season. What happened to that prayer? I mean, we we moved on to a different theme. We went from wherever we were at the end of John. We went into the Holy Spirit series. I understand. We, we, you know, we can't talk about the same thing every week. But what happened to that prayer? Like, we were praying that prayer, right? And a lot of us who were praying that prayer are not here to pray that prayer anymore. There's a few people who are here now who weren't there when we prayed that prayer, but it's more on the other side. Difficulties came. We thought maybe we were getting through difficulties, and more came. We thought maybe we were walking out of the gym, and we were just getting a drink. (laughs) Coming back in so more weights could be placed on the barbell. Difficulties on our team. Difficulties among members, between members, between members and leaders. Trial after trial. Relational struggles. What about that prayer? Has God forgotten that prayer? Has God forgotten his people? No. My mother and my father will forsake me. But you will never forget me. What if God knew the trials and temptations were coming? And what if he allowed those trials and temptations to keep making their way towards us, even as we prayed that prayer unawares? What if these trials and temptations are part of him working to answer that prayer in our midst? What if he wants to use what we've gone through and what we're going through to make us more humble, more gentle, more forbearing, more zealous 
and less presumptive of unity. More eager to keep a peace that we know is easier than we thought to lose. What if he's doing all that so that we would end up stronger than if we'd never faced these trials? Doesn't that sound like the Bible? We think of that individually, right? God strips away everything so that I might learn to depend on him. We always think of that individually. But I never think of that in terms of, I I mean, I hardly ever just naturally think of that in terms of my church body, my church family. I think of it in terms of my family, my wife and I, and our marriage, and what might happen to us, how God will be faithful to us. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible doesn't talk to me as an individual. I don't see that in Paul's letters. I am not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. I am not alone, the singular dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We are together the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the language of Scripture. That's why Paul screams out these ones, these ones, these ones. One Father, one God, one baptism. I feel like he's like, he's saying, give me a break, people. You're going to call yourselves Christians. And you're going to divide. And you're going to bite. And you're going to devour. And you're going to say you're following the same Lord? That's impossible. Somebody might be wrong. Somebody might be right. But when God's people who are divided are divided, everybody can't be right. (laughs) And regardless of if somebody's right and somebody's wrong, the division itself is a failure to God. As much as God might have blessed the Reformation and Martin Luther nailing those 12, I mean, I think Martin Luther needed to do that. I think the Reformation needed to happen. But I think it was a concession, I think it was a failure. I think there was part of God's counsel that was saying, hooray, the gospel will survive. And there was a whole other part of God's Holy Spirit counsel, the Father, Son, and the Spirit that was saying, dang it. Look at this split. Not going to sacrifice the gospel. Not going to be unified and forget truth. No, 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 no. The truth comes before unity. The truth is what we're unified around. Not going to make unity at the expense of the truth. Not going to do that. But dang it. Look at all that division. Look at them killing each other now. I'm going to bring some of those people up to me. But I'm so sad that these people are calling themselves my kids and they're killing each other. I just think it was a mixed bag. And I'm glad I'm in the Luther side of things. <laughs> I am. But what if that prayer that says God is able to do far more than all you ask or imagine? What if doing far beyond all we ask or imagine, what if giving us far beyond all we ask or imagine involves putting us through trials and difficulties that are far beyond all we asked or imagined? First, doesn't that sound like the Bible? 
I do believe that these commands we looked at today, be humble, be gentle, be patient, forbear, be eager for unity and peace. I do believe that these commands are what it looks like when the answer to the prayer for love to be expressed among us, the love of Christ to be experienced in our hearts among us. That, that's what it looks like when that prayer is answered. And so here's my last application for this. It's really simple. I don't have a long application. Hopefully the Lord will give you some things to fill in. As we prepare for the solemn assembly on April 7th, I'm just asking all of you to pray this Ephesians prayer for our church family. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. I'm asking you all in this room to pray it every day. And if it becomes rote to you, then pray it in some other way. Pray the substance and the truth of the prayer in some way. And if you need help, email me and tell me. Give me some more prayers like this. But hopefully you can pray it. 24 hours later, it will still be fresh to you to think about it. I'm asking you to pray it every day. That you and I together, not as individuals, but as a family in Christ, would know more deeply and more clearly Christ's love for us. That we would know this together. And then in addition, in addition, I'm asking you to pray that God would answer that prayer in such a way that his answer will be expressed in our living out the commandments in Ephesians 4, 1 through 5, more deeply and more clearly and more faithfully than we ever have before. I'm asking that every person spend at least a few minutes each day praying this prayer for our church to the solemn assembly, Ephesians three fourteen through 21, and making that answer evident, asking you to pray that it would be evident that he's answering that prayer because we're beginning to see more gentleness, more humility, more patience, more forbearance, and more eagerness for unity among us. And while you're at it, if I might, just a few things that might suit some of us individually. As we prepare for this solemn assembly, if you have functional enemies in your heart, People that you, you, you do love, but you feel like they're your enemies, your functional opposition. Inside this church or outside this church, broken relationships among brothers and sisters. Would you just pray each day for God to bless those people who you consider your functional enemies? Would you pray for your enemies? They might be in your own house. Would you be praying for your enemies? If you have folks who have hurt you or betrayed you or harmed you, I just appeal to you to begin to pray for them regularly, especially when that pain comes to the surface. If you're struggling to forgive someone, you know that you should. Would you pray that God would give you grace to forgive, give you grace to obey him when he says, forgive as I have forgiven you. And if you have trouble doing that, ask him to help you remember how he has forgiven you. You know, it's been helpful for me lately to remember more and more about particularly what I was before I came to Christ. Even things like when I was a little kid, I used to beat up littler kids. I used to be a bully. I'd get bullied, but I'd bully. I remember those awful sins. How I would treat women before I came to Christ. How I would think about them. How I thought of myself before I came to Christ. Not that I haven't done a lot of sinning since, but those sins before Christ are, there wasn't a real battle to be holy in those days. And it's easier to see how desperate I needed a Savior. And that's begin to give me grace to think about the forgiveness God's given me 
and how I'm called to forgive others. And lastly, when you're tempted in your heart in this season to do anything contrary to these commands, gentle, patient, forgive, forbear, eager for unity, I just encourage you to confess that to God as soon as you're aware of it. Lord, I just confess to you, I, I, don't, I don't want this. I don't want to be gentle. You're commanding me to. It's going to be a gym thing. It's going to be a barbell for my bicep. It's too hard. I don't want it. Just confess that to him. Just tell him. Lord, I want to do something contrary to what you want me to do. My heart is longing for a sinful response to your command. Forgive me and cleanse me and help me to obey you. Oh, he will honor that. He will honor that. I think I've said this before. Long ago, I had a friend in pastor's college that, well, I don't know if he was a friend. He was just a guy that drove me nuts. And he drove some other people nuts, but I had a particular proclivity to being driven nuts. <laughs> and for some reason, he pushed my buttons more than anybody else. And I just really began to just get disgusted with this guy. And then God allowed me to get disgusted with myself about that. And so what was really cool was God gave me this idea that every time I had a thought that was hateful about that person, it was, a, it was an alarm bell to pray for him. And it was so beautiful because every time I'd have a hateful thought, I would just confess that hateful thought, say, Lord, I'm hating this guy. And then, and that's, that's your alarm clock. Pray for him. Bless him. And so I just really, Lord, I, I mean this respectfully because I don't want to, uh, however you're not supposed to treat satanic powers in, in some sort of uh, whatever Jude says. Don't go around. Um, I can't remember what the word is, but you can read it in Jude. It's not a big book. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it in a trite way with these things. But I, I do have to imagine my sanctified imagination if that did not drive the devil and his demons crazy. <laughs> that every time they got a hateful thought or contemptuous thought in my heart towards this person, it triggered prayer for that person in me. Like Pavlov's dog, you know? It's like, man, the, the more we try to get that person, to, Albert, to hate that guy, the more he prays for that guy. This is not working. Like we thought it was going to work. So those are just some, some practices, you know, for wherever you might be individually. But the big, the big appeal is, can we all be praying? I'll send the prayer out tomorrow. I'll send this out, this little instruction out to Mark. We all be praying daily for, for this church to experience the love of Christ together, that we might then see that expressed in gentleness, humility, and love for each other, in forbearance and forgiveness, and see God do a miracle. He's, he's up to it. I think God is, is, is trying to turn this church into something very special. I mean, it already is, but in its functioning life, I think he's trying to turn it into something much more special than we can understand it can be through the power of his spirit for each other and for the lost. I really do, I really do believe that because he just doesn't give up. It's not his way. So let's seek him. Let's seek him. Deb, would you pray for us as we close and... And then we'll we'll sing one more song. Could I get um, could I get Andrew and Maggie to come on back up, and we're going to pray to the Holy Spirit after Deb closes us in prayer. If Andrew and Maggie are around, or maybe it's just me and Andrew. Now I know why they chose me. Is it on? Oh, it is. Okay.
Let's pray. Father, um, you love our church. Um, I love our church, God. Um, I just confess, Lord, my own hesitation this morning in coming, Lord, just thinking, thinking about friends who aren't here. Lord, I just felt that sorrow, not seeing faces, smiling faces that, um, that I'm so sad aren't here anymore, God. Um, and I know that so many, Lord, in our church feel that way. There's this, just this hesitation, this um, sorrow that happens in us, even even on Sunday mornings, God. But Lord, I believe the words that you gave Albert this morning. I believe that your word consistently says that you promise trials for our good, to refine our faith so that we would be dependent on you, God, uh, so that we would image your son, um, Lord, individually. But, Lord, I've also come to see that um, the primary way that we image you and the primary way that you desire for us to image you, Lord, is through our community, is through the body of Christ, that it's it can't, it can't happen individually, Lord, but um, because you are three in one, Lord. There is this eternal, unadulterated, perfect love that you have between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God. And you want that to be what we look like. You want that, uh, you want us to experience that love among one another um, for our joy, um, because it's beautiful and wonderful, um, and to glorify yourself, God. Um, so, Lord, I just I pray for our church and for the ache and the groans and uh, the grumbling and all and everything that's going on, all the hardship, the sorrow, the everything, Lord. Um, you know what's going on. You you intended this, God. And I pray, um, I pray that you would empower us through your spirit to endure, to press into you individually, but may that move out towards one another. May we move out to help and to help one another bear one another's burdens, God. Um, yeah, I pray that you would preserve our church, um, make us image you more, help us to love one another more. May we experience that joy of community uh, so that we'll be a light for Frederick, um, that it won't just be kind of the surface level. We preach the gospel, we say the right things, Lord, but may there be this rich communal um, love flowing among one another that represents you, Lord. Um, yeah. And, um, I just pray these things in your son's name. Amen.